One of the most profound books that I have read this year is a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. If you've been in a small group, I talked about it pretty regularly. Uh, the subtitle is How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Now, this piece of sociological data and interpretation developed out of an article that the pair wrote for The Atlantic in September of 2015. The main thesis of this book is that by creating you know, safety zones with young people, that we have underdeveloped or allowed them to be underdeveloped maturity in many areas of life. Right? These concerns from safety go beyond just the physical realm, although it involves the physical realm. They have a fascinating trend of kind of the, the over, what they call the overprotection of parenting uh, that kind of took place starting in the 90s. But it goes beyond just the physical arenas and have sought to protect students from words and ideas that they don't like. It's a fascinating uh, look at the cultures of academic institutions and parenting and how, in many ways, we are not preparing students for engagement in the world, especially in a world where we might come across ideas that we don't like or we don't agree with. Now, I'd highly recommend it to anyone. One of the authors, Jonathan Haidt, is a social psychologist and he tackles much of the emotional components in these trends. And one of the metaphors that he uses in the book describes our emotional and rational perspectives as an elephant and a rider. The metaphor separates the, 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 the facets of our psyche into two sides, that everyone has an elephant and a rider. The rider is the rational thinker, the evidence-based decision maker, right? our conscious, our controlled process. The elephant represents everything else that goes on in our minds. Those elements that are often unconscious, intuitive, or automatic. Now what the metaphor captures is that the rider thinks that he or she is in control. Right? The, the rider is the one believing that he or she is driving, directing the elephant. But of the two, the elephant is vastly stronger. And any time that there is a conflict between the two, is going to win out. Now, the, ele the rider might be telling the elephant to go forward, but if the ele elephant is fearful, it's not going to follow rational instructions, but will back away, will rear up based on the input it receives. And so that's why when we have situations of deep emotional feelings, it can affect our bodies physiologically. It could control our behavior. So if you haven't guessed, the, the, our emotions would fall under this characteristic of an elephant. So keep that in mind, that dichotomy of those two. Now, as we continue, we're working our way through the prologue of the book of Genesis, and we're going to encounter a story in the Bible where emotions and desires come into play about doing the right thing before God. Now, just to catch you up to speed where we've been the last few weeks, the last three weeks we've looked at the good, the very good creation of God. But then last week we saw how Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that they pursued their own good instead of obedience to God. And sin entered the world, marring several relationships between humanity, God, others, creation, 
This morning we're going to see that that downward spiral is going to continue towards selfishness. But at the same time, we're going to see God's continued presence even in the midst of suffering and wickedness. So if you want to open your Bibles and turn to Genesis 4, we're going to be looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I'm going to read just sections of it. I'm going to skip the midpoint, which is verses 17 through 24. Uh, If you want to read it yourself, uh, it it continues to really show this decline of humanity. There's this escalation of tit-for-tat exchanges that leads to more murder. You have the first case of polygamy, selfishness, insecurity, vengeance, all, all wrapped up in those verses. Those are a little bit of an aside from what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if if you want to follow along as I read, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and then I'm going to skip to the end and just do verses 25 and 26. Now remember, the purpose of this series is to track, to see the redemptive threads of God working throughout human history. This story is clearly a tragedy, but as I read, pay attention to the ways, the glimpses you see of God working in in the midst of it. So chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And Cain derives from this Hebrew word forgotten. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then skipping down to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son 
and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So this episode falls right after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Now Cain is first celebrated because his arrival is a blessing. It's a sign of hope. Eve has produced an offspring, which is that very first step of the Lord fulfilling his promise that we looked at last week, Genesis 3.15, that the serpent and the offspring of the serpent may yet be overcome. Now, as we know, humanity had much more waiting to do before redemption would come, but this was a necessary step in that process. Right? Death did not have the last word to Adam and Eve, but there was a, uh, an offspring, a descendant, that would pass this promise through. The next few verses, two through five, detail the birth of Abel, and then describes that both brothers bring an offering of their goods to the Lord. Now, the text doesn't state explicitly why God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's, but it does give us some hints. Now, first, first and foremost, I want to make sure that through this text that we should understand it's not meant to be understood as elevating the vocation of herdsmen over a farmer. Right? It's not that what Abel was doing for his work was more worthwhile than Cain's, nor that God would only accept animal offerings and not plant or food offerings. It wasn't in the, the essence of what was, uh, or, or the type of what was offered, right? We see the sacrificial system in, in Levit- Leviticus provides avenues for animals, but it also provides avenues for grain, even wine, drink offerings. So the, the goods of the land were also an acceptable offering. But the text says that Abel gave of the firstborn and the fat portions of his flock, He gave the good stuff, right? The best of the best of his wares. Now, the text doesn't tell us that Cain, on the other hand, gave his leftovers to God, but I think the fact that Abel's offering, right, this description of Abel's offering is offered should allow us to infer that Cain's offering was somehow substandard. That's got me thinking. I don't know if you heard of the Misfits Market. It's a grocery delivery service that provides organic produce to you at a significant discount from the grocery store. Now, the catch is they're what are considered ugly and imperfect produce. The fruits and veggies don't lack any of the nutritional value, but they're not going to be, you know, the head-turning money beats in the store. little office offering for you there. Right? Would misshaped produce be a worthwhile offering to God. There's not anything fundamentally wrong with it. It isn't like it's spoiled. But the Bible makes it clear that God is a God of perfection, and because of that, he is owed perfection. Cain's offering was rejected. Abel's was honored, and Cain is ticked about this. Verse 5 says that he was very angry. I would imagine he was feeling a degree of envy, and and the the, the text says that his face fell. Keep that language in mind because it's relevant to what we see next. 
Notice God's response. He doesn't chastise Cain for his inappropriate offering. He's not critical of the way in which Cain's behaviors has affected how they have affected him directly, but he cuts right to the place of Cain's current context, right where he is in that moment. He says, why are you angry? If you do right, will you not be accepted? Now, if you're reading the ESV, you'll see a footnote there, and this is why I said to keep that in mind, that phrase of his face fell, because the Hebrew there of won't you be accepted literally means that if you do right, won't you experience a lifting of your face? Right? Cain has an opportunity here in this moment at a crossroads to change his trajectory. God didn't have regard for his offering, but he could kind of cut the bleeding in this moment. God describes Cain's sin like an animal stalking him. And in fact, this is the first mention of sin. Kata is the Hebrew word in the Bible. Right? We know that Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, but it's not labeled as that. This is the first time that is labeled in Scripture. And he describes that sin like an animal stalking him, ready to pounce on its prey. And this description always reminded of what we see in 1 Peter 5, 8. And Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have that same anthropomorphic language of sin crouching at the door for Cain. Now Cain's sin in this case is his unrestrained anger. Earlier this year, I preached a series through the seven deadly sins. And I shared with you all that those sins are labeled as deadly because, you know, not because they're typically these graphic or grand displays of sin. Uh, Although in this case, Cain's sin is deadly by that account. But they're deadly because they are insidious. They can subtly eat away from us, from the inside. And we don't even realize how far they have carried us from God. And this is an example of wrath. Cain in his anger is not seeing rightly. Now, I think this is something that we all ought to consider in our own lives. What do we do with our emotions, especially when they are strong? Our emotions are often like that elephant that I described at the start of this message. We like to think that our rationality is in charge as the rider, but when that six-ton elephant gets spooked, we've got to figure out how do we regain control? How do we tread carefully? Are we the master of our emotions or have we been mastered by them? It is understandable that Cain was angry, but where did that anger come from? Was it because he was envious of of Abel's success? Was it because of the shame that he felt for his rejection? Human beings are complex beings, a complexity that I would argue comes from what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. It's important for us to understand, to look inwardly, so that we can better understand ourselves, that we can name, identify our feelings. Scientists at the University of Berkeley suggest that humans have 27 different states of emotion. 
I know there was a lot of popularity with the, uh, the, the movie, Pixar movie, Inside Out, and they did a great job of kind of describing how the emotions play with one another. What were their five? Joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. And long held, those were the five emotions that we felt. But again, like I said, the University of Berkeley suggests actually there's much more complexity in this. 27 that are constantly working alongside of one another. When the path is murky and we don't precisely know what we feel or why we feel it, it can be very difficult for us to de-escalate and regain control of our emotions. If you're someone who, who struggles with fits of anger or sadness or anxiety, it's my opinion that a godly thing to do would be to try to analyze those things, to identify why we're feeling. And part of that might be seeking professional help from a therapist. We don't do ourselves any favors when we try to grapple with those elephants outside of our realms of expertise. Especially, you probably all know that it's very difficult to be objective of, of a how you evaluate yourself when you're in the midst of this emotional bout. We honor God when we understand the co complex feelings that God has placed within us and use them to love God, to love our neighbor, to love ourselves. We'll put a pin in that for now. Back in our story, much like his parents came, succumbed to his temptation, and he took matter into his own hands, and he kills Abel. In verse 9, we see a similar question posed to Cain that was asked of his father that we saw last week. The Lord says, where is your brother? And we saw this with Adam after he ate the, the fruit and he hid from God and God said, Adam, where are you? And just like the situation that we addressed last week, I don't think the question is asked for the Lord's benefit. God knows where Abel is. In a moment, he makes a reference to Abel's blood crying out in that very next verse. But I think he asks the question to put Cain in a situation where he needs to come to terms with his actions. He needs to understand what it is that he has just committed. But the way that Cain responds shows where his heart really is. It's the cold-hearted response that lacks any kind of remorse, any kind of empathy. With Adam and Eve, we saw excuse-making, we saw deflection, but at least they acknowledged their guilt before God. Cain's not even willing to do that. So God continues in verses 10 through 12 and reveals the consequences for his actions. The blood of Abel is crying out from the ground. It wants justice. Abel was murdered and the blood of Abel is petitioning God to do something about it. It cries for death in response to the death experienced. This incident is actually picked up a few other places in Scripture. In two of the Gospels, Jesus refers to the blood of Abel and the blood of the prophets which are spilled out in testimony against their generation. It's Matthew 23 and Luke 11. But probably the most important of these passages is found in the book of Hebrews. And in this passage, the author is explaining how Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. I'm going to read for you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, and it says this. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
This is a really important connection by the author because Abel's blood, as I said a moment ago, is crying from the ground for justice. But who among us is pure? Who among us is sinless? Now, we may not have taken, you know, to the the conclusion, to the extent of Cain in that extreme situation. But the truth is, we also are going to have the blood of others crying out against us for ways that we have wronged them. But God, in his great mercy, has dealt with that cry by the shedding of his own blood. The blood of Abel cries out for justice, revenge, but the blood of Jesus cries out mercy and grace. We may not have gone to the lengths of Cain, but we have sinned against God. We have sinned against others. We are not spotless, and if it was not for Jesus, the verdict against Cain would be our verdict as well. But it is only after the judgment is read in verse 13 that Cain finally seems to show any kind of remorse. He says that the punishment is too great for him to shoulder. Cain feels perhaps, perhaps for the first time the sheer gap that exists, the chasm as we sang about this morning between himself and God, himself and the land which is further alienated from him because of the shedding of his brother's blood. And what we see in this moment is that God continues to hand out unmerited grace. Cain has done nothing, yet God provides a means of protection. While Cain's guilt is severe, God says it's not on the role of others to take it upon themselves to enact vengeance upon Cain. He's given this mark. We don't know precisely what it is, but it's enough to show that it was off-limits, that Cain was off-limits from the judgment of others. But Cain's still in his sin. And don't miss the symbolism of verse 16. Cain moves east of Eden and settles in the land of Nod. And the word Nod, I think there's a footnote there if you're reading the ESV, literally means wandering. Cain was called a wanderer and he settles in a place of wandering. But notice kind of the geographic trajectory here. Adam and Eve sinned. And he drove them from his presence in the garden. And where did they settle? The end of chapter 3 tells us that they were driven east of the garden. Now Cain and his wandering settles even farther east from the garden. The symbolism that we're intended to catch is not the significance of the latitude and longitudinal coordinates of Cain's residence, but that relatively speaking, his sin has moved him farther and farther from the presence of God. And I think what we can learn from this is that sin separates us. One of the consequences of sin is that it separates us from God. And here we see this physical representation of what was true spiritually. But as usual, the story is not over because God continues to act. Look down at verses 25 and 26. Adam and Eve's two sons are no more, but God's plan is not thwarted. Eve conceives and gives birth to another son, Seth, another offspring, which means that hope and the promises of God continue. And there's also this interesting note that this was the, f- the time people began to call on the name of the Lord, and it's unclear precisely what this means. But some speculate that this is a reference to the beginning of corporate, of public worship. All right, let's try to bring some of these themes home for us. 
And I have three points that I want to circle back to in this text that we looked at this morning. Now, the first is this. We see very clearly that God continues to bring his plans to bear. When Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, it didn't derail God's plan. He provided hope. He provided a promise through the lineage of Eve. And right at the beginning of our passage, we see the the beginning fruit, the first fruit of that promise, the birth of a son. But in this, we also see the sovereignty of God, that his goals are out of reach of humanity. God uses us, he uses people to bring about his purposes, but none of us are able to thwart what he has declared to be. Cain killed his brother and then lived the rest of his life in isolation, in opposition to the things of God. That momentary hope, that kind of high, that dopamine hit they got when when a son was born, an offspring was here that can deliver us into these promises of, of overturning the serpent. That momentary hope was dashed. But God's bigger than that, and God continues to work, and Seth is brought into the world. Now, this means a few things for us. First, it means that you and I are not big enough to foil God's plans. Hallelujah. I hope that is a word of hope for you. Even when we royally mess up, we can't stop God's purposes from happening. Now, that's not to say that we won't have to deal with the consequences of our actions. We will. We saw Cain have consequences for his poor decision-making. But so often, I speak to folks who feel paralyzed, They feel so fearful that they're going to do the wrong thing, as if something we could do could prevent God from being faithful to us, from bringing about what he said he's going to bring about in the end. We cannot screw up God's plans, but that also means that no one else can mess up God's plans for us. It's not to say that there won't be suffering in life. There will be suffering. There will be things that we have to hurdle, suffering to endure, but God's goodness in bringing shalom and bringing restoration to us and our world is guaranteed. And we sang last week in that song that God said it, and I believe it. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. There are times where it feels like evil triumphs and good suffers. And that might be a real the, the real uh, cross-section of what's happening in that moment. But God says the last word has not been stated. He is faithful. The second piece of application I, are, I already mentioned, but it bears repeating. Humans are emotional beings. It's part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Learning about ourselves is crucial to our own spiritual development. Pete Scazzaro Uh, wrote a phenomenal book called The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in it, he argues that it is not possible for us to be spiritually mature if we are not first emotionally mature. He says there's a, a lot of us have a lot of baggage, emotional baggage that we need to deal with if we really want to have this spiritual connection, if we want to refine that spiritual connection with God. And so that means going through the steps of learning about yourself. And there's ample resources out there. Find a counselor who is a good fit for you. Right? I, I often compare find, finding a counselor like dating. Right? You don't have to settle on the first counselor, the first therapist that, you, uh, that you, you, you meet with. If it's not a good fit, 
it's all right if you don't jive together or they have trouble understanding your worldview or understanding your faith. Find another one. Read books about the subject. Right, that Pete Scazzera book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I mentioned a few moments ago. Right, le- learn about the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, uh, personality tests, Gallup Strength Finder. There, there are all kinds of resources out there, both Christian and secular, that can help us understand a little bit more about ourselves. A great read for this, uh, the Enneagram is something that I know has kind of come in vogue in the last 10 years. Um, and there's a book, uh, the Enneagram, no one knows precisely where it came from, but some speculate actually that it was originated from Evagrius, who was the father of the seven deadly sins, although he had eight. Uh, but the, we, we, we mentioned, I mentioned Evagrius a number of times earlier, uh, back in I think like the fifth century. But the, the Road Back to You is a book about the Enneagram. It's by Ian Morgan Crone and Suzanne Stabile. And in it, in the book, the very first kind of quote that they put is, comes from St. Augustine. And he says this, I quote, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Take care of your emotional health. The last point I want to make is to soberly acknowledge the consequences of sin. We live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? A blood, as we saw this morning, that does not cry out for condemnation, but cries out freedom. But this freedom does not mean that we ought to just run willy-nilly into all the things that God says are bad for us. Uh, this, is, this is this transition we see in the book of Romans. The first several chapters, Paul is saying how great grace is. And then at the start of chapter 6, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? If grace is so great, should we just keep doing whatever we want to do? So then we get more grace, right? That's a good thing. He's like, no, heaven forbid. He uses the strongest Greek language to say that, uh, that is the wrong, you're asking the wrong question. You don't get what I'm saying if you're asking that. And so the truth is we encounter sin in our lives. We're not condemned for it, but there are consequences to our actions. And we saw this with Cain, that sin alienates us from God. It moves us, moves us farther from his presence, not just physically, but spiritually as well. We cannot continue living in sin and expect that it's not going to have any bearing on our relationship with God. Sin in our lives can produce interference that makes it more difficult to experience God. And I was trying to think of a metaphor, and the best I came up with, this, doesn't, this fits great, if not, just forget I said anything. I was thinking about it, it's like, you know, if you're in a car, an old car that has those old-fashioned analog, you know, radios, it's nice with the digital, you just push a button and it goes right there. But those old analog ones where you got that, you know, you're trying to find that right frequency in there. And you're driving a car here in Pittsburgh, probably after the winter, and you're dodging potholes. And, you know, you're, you're, you're about to find the right station and then boom, you know, you hit a pothole and it jars your hand. Right? Those, sin is like the, those potholes are like the sin in our lives. And it jars us. And we miss the mark of what we're trying to tune in to God. We miss out on the message that we're trying to hear. Right? Maybe you hear the station faintly for a moment, but it's filled with static. It makes it difficult to, to discern this message. And so I would encourage you to take inventory of your lives. Hallelujah, we, we, we follow Jesus who has given us freedom. But that can be true, and there also might be points in your life where you're living out of alignment with God's commands. 
Don't just sugarcoat it. Don't just ignore your sin. Don't say, who am I? My brother's keeper. Acknowledge and identify those places where you're living out of alignment and go to God in prayer, asking him to help you work through the sources of temptations, to work through that weakness, to bring healing to your heart. So let's think about some places where we can reflect this, where we can reflect on this this week. And so the, and these fit with these three points. The first is this. How does knowing that we can't mess up God's plan provide freedom to work towards his kingdom? You can't do anything to derail God's plan. And so instead of being paralyzed with, is this the right, is this, here's an example, right? We are called to share the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others. But time and time again, I talk to people who say, I don't know what to say to someone. I know I'm supposed to share the good news. I'm supposed to share the gospel. But what if I say something that pushes them farther away from Jesus? Again, this isn't, you know, an excuse to just treat them like a jerk. That might actually push them farther from Jesus. But I I would encourage you to be less concerned with what you say. Be yourself. Be the person, the genuine person that God has created you to be. And share the gospel. And let God be responsible for the fruit of that work. We are not called to, to... to bring anyone to Jesus. God is the one that brings people to Jesus. We're just called to be faithful laborers. So be faithful in that. Take those risks. And if you, if you fail, if you find you fall yourself on your, you know, fall on your face, it's all right. God provides grace. He provides freedom in this. We can't screw it up. So take those risks. Second is this. I'd encourage you to take an inventory of your emotional health. Because all of us, you know, all of us, would benefit from, from looking within. Right? Just to put you know, my, myself out there, um, I, I have gone through some, some tough things in, in my life, and for the last year and a half, I've been seeing, almost two years now, I've been seeing a therapist bi-weekly. And it has been a great opportunity for me, not only to, to address some of these things, but it's also provided an opportunity for me to deal with anxiety. Whereas when I would, when I would worry, I just get, I don't know if you're like that, where you just kind of get fixated and you cycle and cycle and cycle. And, and I've been able to have some, some places where I can trust God more and not kind of be fixated in those things. So anyway, take inventory of your emotional health. What steps would be good for you to do so that you can know yourself so as a result, you can better know God. And lastly is this. Spend some time this week contemplating the places where you've sinned. Go through this rhythm of confession and repentance. Confession is an acknowledgement of sin, taking responsibilities for those areas of sin. But then repentance. Because sometimes we don't even want to confess. We just want to you know, sugarcoat, just pretend it, you know, stuff it under the rug. But there's something healing that comes when we bear our souls and we acknowledge, yep, Lord, that was me. I'm sorry. But repentance is the next step in that process. It's not just apologizing for it, but repentance. Repent literally means to turn about, right, to have a change of mind on those areas. But repentance, as it's been understood in the history of the church, is not just us physically turning from them but inviting God into our lives to bring healing in that area. 
you are not going to change your life, at least not in the long term, by just beating yourself up, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You might see some victory for some time, but true victory comes through the work of Jesus in our lives, inviting God into more and more uh, places of our soul to work that restoration so that we can not be distant from God, not allow our sin to separate us from him. If I can invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and that even in these stories that we read that are tragedies, that are not meant to be prescriptive for us. Lord, that these stories are not necessarily here for us to always emulate the lives of those who lived them, but to see your heart, to see your redemption, to see your plan. Lord, help us know that you are faithful and that you will bring to bear the plans that you have orchestrated. We can't do anything to derail it. We can't thwart it. Lord, try as we might to do the right thing. The truth is there are plenty of places where we do the wrong thing. May we acknowledge those areas. Lord, may we root them out. May we shine your bright light on them so that the darkness can be removed and that we can be in communion with you again. It's only through the grace of Jesus and his blood that cries a better word than Abel's that we pray this. Amen.